we've taken the last four weeks or so to look at this, and today we're going to be completing this section. And as I say some things today as we travel through, it's going to be a little bit different than maybe what some other churches would teach as we, as we look at what the Bible says. And as I say that, I want you to know that I have friends in ministry who are on very opposite sides of, of uh, the teachings on the gifts of the Spirit. Some would say, we don't want anything to do with that. Some, that there's a great focus on that. And I want you to know that we, we are all great friends. We're friends with churches on both sides. They love us. We love them. So anything that I, I share today is, is not to bring any friction, maybe to bring some light and some understanding as we, we travel through and we just see what the Bible says. So you want to know that today as, uh, as we get into this. And again, one of the other challenges that we face is just what do you leave in and, and what do you leave out? There's so much that we could talk about. And because of that, uh, today might be a little bit of an overload of information. But over the last few weeks, as we've been in this section on spiritual gifts, maybe there's a question that, although we've tried to answer the questions as we go, maybe there's a question that, that you have that, that we haven't been able to answer. So today, if you do have a question, write it down in your connection card and drop it in one of the offering boxes on the way out. And, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this. Maybe we'll just answer the question in the email. But, but uh, you know, so, so let us know. Well, as we jump in today, one of the things that we've done each week as we've been looking at this subject is we've asked the question, what exactly is a spiritual gift? And each week we go to this verse on your outline, which Paul writes to the Church of Rome, and he says this, God has given each of us, has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. And we've, we've said each week that a spiritual gift is a God-given ability to do something well, some, something unique. And every one of us are going to have different gifts. But when he says each one, the idea is that every believer will have at least one spiritual gift. And we also have been referencing that when Paul began this book, as he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, one of the things that he said in the very first chapter, there in your outline, he says, therefore you, speaking to this church, he says, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you, and we underlined, eagerly await, you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. It was their understanding as a church that God gave spiritual gifts to to the individuals within the church, all the individuals within the church, and those gifts were given as they were waiting for Jesus to be revealed. We would say till Jesus came back. So it was their understanding that the gifts that God gave as they were waiting for Jesus to be revealed, we'd say Jesus to come back, all of those gifts would be in operation until he came back. So as we began this section, you remember chapter 12, Paul gives the overview of spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts are to be used only with what we would call that agape love, that that love that comes from God. And then in chapter 14, Paul is dealing with the specific use of gifts within the church service. And apparently there was some abuse going on, and so Paul wanted to talk about and bring some correction so that there could be proper use. So from last week, if I can just share a couple of things, and you want to write these things down fast on your outline, Uh, Verse 2, we saw that Paul said, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. And we underlined that last week. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. So last week we talked about how this gift of tongues was a language that the person who was speaking it didn't understand. 
And in verse 14, you don't have to look, look to it or turn to it, but Paul says, he t- says that tongues is a form of prayer. And then in verse 17, he says tongues can also be a form of praise. And, and so, but the part, the part that we, we really highlighted, and I want you to write this down again, is that in all cases, tongues is speaking to God, not men. Speaking to God, not men. Let me read verse 2 again. He says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. It's always speaking to God. It's never God speaking to man, giving a message. It's always towards God. Verse 3, prophecy on the other hand, he would say, but the one who prophesies speaks to men, which is very different, for edification, exhortation, and consolation. So whereas tongue speaks to God, prophecy would be God speaking to man. And uh, so you want to write down, uh, prophecy is speaking to man, not to God. And then in that verse, it defined for us what prophecy was in this chapter. And it said exhortation or edification, exhortation, and consolation. Prophecy would be edification that's building you up in your faith. Exhortation, which is encouragement, saying let's get going. And then consolation, having a hard time, God's going to see you through. That's what, what, what it is in this chapter. Sometimes prophecy is talking about the future, but in this chapter it's always edification, exhortation, and consolation. And then in verse 12, you remember from last time, he says, so also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And uh, we underline that, the edification of the church. So one of the things that we learned from last week is that in church, you want to write this down, in church we do what benefits the whole church. We do what benefits the whole church. Verses 18 and 19, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, and of course this is the church service, not as personal prayer time or a small group meeting, but in the church, he says, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I might instruct others and some of your Bibles would say teach, also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so we saw two things when we traveled through that last week. The first thing we saw is that Paul refrained from tongues in the church service, and we wrote that down. And the second thing that we saw there was that the goal of the church meeting from Paul's perspective was instruction or teaching, however your, your Bible would say that. Then we came to verse 20, and Paul just said, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So then Paul, as he gives that background, he turns and he says, now we're going to talk about some things very specifically to bring some understanding. And uh, for some of you, this is going to be something that you're very familiar with. For some of us, because we're not really familiar with the Bible, there, there might be a few things here that might be a little bit foreign to us, but, but uh, you'll, you'll be able to get, get the idea as we, as we travel through. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 21 and 22, and Paul begins to say some things that can be a little bit strange to our ears, and hopefully we'll be able to bring some perspective. Verse 21, he says, in the law... It is written. And then I want you to notice that for most of you, the font changes because Paul, Paul is going to be quoting from the Old Testament. So when the font changes, that's how you know that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. It says, in the law it is written, and he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, and I want you to underline this last part, he says, so they will not listen to me. I'm going to speak to them, but they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, so then tongues are a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers, unbelievers. But prophecy, and underline to unbelievers, 
But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So here's Paul, and he talks about this gift of tongues, and he says it's a sign to unbelievers, but then he quotes from the Old Testament. And when he quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes from Isaiah. And what's happening in Isaiah, and we won't turn back to it today, but you can look back and and read the surrounding verses. God has been speaking to his people for years, and he's been saying, you need to repent. If you don't repent, I'm going to send judgment. And, And God's people, years go by as Isaiah continues to preach to them, years go by and they don't repent. And so finally God says, you're not listening to what I'm saying, and I'm speaking very clearly, so I'll tell it to you in another way. Here's what he says there in your outline. He says, verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 11, what, that Paul quotes, he says, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. And then once again, I want you to underline, yet they would not hear. Does everybody see that? So, so here's what's going on. Paul, uh, Paul, Isaiah says, God is speaking, he says, you're not listening. And because you're not listening, I'm going to send judgment. And the judgment that I'm going to send is going to be the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to show up. They're going to be speaking a language that you've never heard of. And when they show up, they're going to conquer you. They're going to invade you. They're going to put you in captivity. And and I want you to know you wouldn't listen when I was speaking clearly here. So now I'm going to speak through this group as they bring judgment on you. And then God says, but the truth is, even when I do that, He concludes by saying, yet they would not hear. Even when that judgment comes, they still won't listen. So far, so good? So so you you see that that this, uh, Paul refers to that, but one of the things that we learn about tongues is that, that tongues is one of those gifts, but it doesn't make people believe. For instance, if you've been around the church for a while, you've certainly heard of the day of Pentecost. Now the day of Pentecost is typically the day that we as Christians hold that the church was born. You have the apostles, they're in the upper room, they're praying, and um, the Feast of Pentecost is going on. And it's in that time in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. And it describes tongues like a flaming fire comes down, and the apostles begin up, and they stand up and, and they begin to speak. And the people are hearing them, and it says that they were declaring the wonders of God in their own language. That's what the people were hearing. And as they heard, as that's going out, there are two responses as the crowd listens to what the apostles are saying. Now also, one more time, the the apostles weren't preaching, they weren't giving a message, and they weren't teaching. They were declaring the wonders of God. You could say they were praising God, because tongues is always towards God. But people were listening in. There were two responses on that day. And I put that, uh, both responses there on your outline from Acts chapter 2. They hear them, and it says, They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, this is the crowd listening to the apostles. One group says, what does this mean? And you want to underline that. But others were saying, were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. You know, they're drunk. So here you have these two responses. And here's how tongues does not lead somebody, somebody to faith. You have one group, they hear the apostles and they recognize something that God is doing. They begin to question, they say, what does this mean? It's at that point where Peter stands up, nobody's gotten saved at this point, Peter stands up and gives a very lengthy sermon. And it's at the end of his very lengthy sermon, which everybody understood, they respond by saying, what must, we do, what must we do to be saved? How many of you have heard that story before? 
And so they respond in that way. It wasn't that they were speaking in tongues. That didn't cause anybody to believe. It was that God used Peter's sermon, and that's when they say, what must we do to be saved? Well, on the other hand, so that didn't cause them to believe. Others heard them, and they just assumed that they were drunk. You must be filled with sweet wine. And so they just mocked, and they said that you're, you're drunk. So in ancient Israel, they wouldn't listen to what God was clearly saying. So God says, so I'll speak to you in another way. And even so, you won't believe. Then you have on the day of Pentecost, you have one group, they hear, they say, what must we do to be saved after a very lengthy sermon? And so, but it wasn't the tongues. And then another group, they hear the tongues and they go, you know, you guys must be drunk. And then in verse 21, Paul reminds us and he says, the law is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So the idea is that the result then and the result now, uh, as people hear tongues who don't understand what it is, it, it's not belief, but it's unbelief. And I want you to write that down in every, in every case. This is where we would be very different from our Pentecostal friends. And I, I mean friends in the truest sense, our Pentecostal friends. Our Pentecostal friends would say, uh, because tongues is a sign for unbelievers, we need to all speak in tongues in the church because it's a sign for them. The problem is it doesn't cause somebody to believe. There's no case where that caused somebody to believe. So then Paul says, so, and and does that at least remotely make sense? Okay, good. So, um, So then verse 23, Paul goes on and says, so here's the problem when we do this in church. Therefore, if the whole church assembles, this is a church service, not a private prayer meeting, the whole church assembles together and speak in tongues and ungifted, we would say people who would be non-charismatics, don't understand what's going on, um, ungifted men or unbelievers enter in, will they not say you are, and in my translation it says you are mad. How many of your Bibles say something like they will say you're out of your mind? Yeah, and, and so both are there. So that's Paul saying, if, if we all get together and we do that, they don't believe, they say you're out of your mind. And so Paul's teaching that this isn't something that, it, it's a valid gift, but it's not really for the church service. So um, what Paul, I, if I could just extrapolate a little bit on what Paul is saying, Paul's saying as believers, when we come to church, we need to be sensitive, and you want to write this down, sensitive to outsiders, sensitive to outsiders. Paul says, if you're all doing this, they're just going to think you're, you're out of your mind as you do this. So that leads us to something that if Calvary is your church home, you need to know this, that we have a motto for our church, for our church services, and uh, we've had this motto for years, and it's never going to change. If this is your church home, you need to know this. So you want you to write this down. This is our church service motto. Ready? Here it is. Write it down. Our motto is, don't be weird. Write that down. Don't be weird. So, so, here's the, so like Paul, Paul says if they come in, you're doing that, they're just going to think you're out of your mind. So you know, like Paul, we refrain from that here in the church service. But then there's some other things that we would also refrain from in the church service because not that it's wrong, not that it's sinful, it's just that if somebody were to come in, they would think it's a little bit weird for them. Case in point. Several months ago... Um, the, the, the worship had started, and a lady comes walking in, and she has a shofar. Do you know what a shofar is? Well, if you don't, a shofar is the horn of a ram 
that they would take in ancient Israel and they would cut off one end so you could blow it like a trumpet. And it would go, kind of thing. And if you've ever heard it, it's, it's, it's uh, quite the sound. So she comes walking in and the ushers realize that the lady has just walked in with a shofar. And so we, they did the right thing. They call Pastor TJ. <laughs> Which is what we all do. There's a problem. Where's TJ? <laughs> so TJ goes up and says, I noticed that you brought a shofar into worship. And she says, yes, in, during the time of worship, at a certain point when the spirit moves me, I like to just pull out the shofar and just blow it, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Well, to which TJ very, and she was very, very gracious, wonderful, but very gracious. But TJ said, you know, we're not really a, a shofar church which is where you respond by saying, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> and, yes. And because, not, not that it's wrong. It's not wrong to blow a shofar in church. It's just that if somebody new comes in, you know, they kind of get that we sing songs. They kind of get that there's people up here with instruments. But you're next to them and they pull out a shofar and they're sitting next to you and go, Barrr. all of a sudden that's weird to people. And, and if you didn't know that, now you do. <laughs> Another time, a lady comes in and she says, you know, the way that I worship is I love to dance in the spirit. And, uh, and uh, we said, well, what, when you say that, you know, and so she described it. And it wasn't like, you know, this is where you live kind of thing. This was, this was. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is that in a movie? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't know. So anyway, <laughs> so she, um, she said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat expressive. And so in a weak moment, we said, well, well, we'll try it, but please not up and down the aisle. She says, I'll stand in the back. Well, her form of dancing in the spirit was like ballet multiplied, you know, so it's like, you know, and there's like this jumping <laughs> And, and so about halfway through the first song, we had to say, you know, we're, we're, we're just not a dancing in the spirit church, which is where you say, there you go. So, so now it's not wrong. It's not immoral. But what it is, is somebody comes in and somebody begins to do that. that that's, that's a little bit weird for them, for, for a lot, for me. Okay. It's weird. So who cares what it is for anybody else? So now, and, and I come from a very charismatic background. So a lady walks in. Why is it always the ladies? What's up? <laughs> lady comes walking in with a tambourine. We're like, mm, warning signs are going, you know, bells are going off. Because I know what that means, you know. And, and so, you know, we, we just, you know, we, we just ask that you don't bring the tambourine into the service and, and do that. So, which is where you say, thank you, Okay. So, so, so Paul's thing is, you know, don't be weird. So if everybody comes to church and they speak in tongues, they're going to say, you're out of your mind. There's an appropriate place for that, but not, not in the church service. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, you come to verses 24 and 25. He says, on the other hand, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. And he's, he's called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. So whereas tongues might be beneficial to the individual, but not appropriate for this environment, prophecy is beneficial. I want you to write this down. It benefits believers and non-believers. And then once again, he says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. 
And back in verse 3, and I put it again on your outline, it just defines for us what this prophecy is that he's talking about. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, their encouragement, and comfort. So God uses that in the life of the believer. When I teach the Bible, you go to a Bible study and somebody teaches, and that encourages you in your faith, that, that's a form of prophecy that's, that's in this chapter. Or somebody hears and they just know that God is speaking to them, that that's a form also. And God uses that in the life of the believer and the unbeliever. So then you come to verse 26. So one, one will cause people to say you're mad. The other one's beneficial to believers and non-believers. And then we come to verse 26. Now I'm going to read verse 26 on our outline because some of you have the NIV translation of the Bible and it leaves out a word that's in the original language that, and it kind of loses a little bit of emphasis. So I'm going to read from the NAS and it says this. Paul says, verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? He says, when, when you assemble, and I've underlined that word assemble, that is the church coming together, each one, each one, uh, and I want you to underline the word has, has a psalm has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So again, in in the church service, some, if you come from a more Pentecostal background, they take this verse and they say, this is how you're to do church. We come together Every one of us is to have a tongue. Every one of us is to have an interpretation. Every one of us is to have a revelation. We need to be prepared, every one of us, with a teaching. Now, now here, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is Paul, just as each one has a tongue, and Paul has just said, if each one of you do that, they're not going to respond with belief. They're going to think that you're out of your mind. So I want you to write this down. Paul is not saying, do this. Paul is saying, this is what you are doing, and it's not good. The idea is, in your church service, everyone is coming in, everyone is participating, and, and it's not creating an environment. All it's doing is, is making people who would be new feel very, very strange, feel very strange. So Paul says, and because of that, because of that, we need to put some parameters on how these things operate. And there on your outline, uh, I'm going to suggest that intelligibility is going to be very important. So if intelligibility is a priority for a worship service, how then should worship proceed? And Paul's going to give us three rules. Rule number one, in the church, do what's beneficial. Write that down. And that was the last line. That's how Paul concluded verse 26. He's saying, each one has this, each one has that, and this, and this. Paul says, wait a minute, in church, do what's beneficial Verse 26, he says, let all things be done for edification. So uh, we're going to do what's beneficial to all. I want you to just notice verse 4 very quickly, if you can just jump back. And verse 4, he said, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, uh, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And so the point that Paul is driving home is that in church, we do what's best for the church. And uh, that, that's, that's what we focus on here at Calvary. Paul then says we need to put some parameters on this. If you insist on doing this, here's how it has to be done. And we're going to notice some of the wording. It's going to be very important. Verse 27, he says, if. Every Bible translation has or begins verse 27 with the word if. Does your Bible begin with the word if? Verse 27, what translation do you have? 
Oh, well, that's not a Bible. Come on. That's, that's, it's a paraphrase. It's okay. That's fine. You blew my sermon. All Bible translations. That's fine. I love the Living Bible. But the word there in the original language is if, if, if. Now, that's important because uh, Paul's not saying when you do this. He says if. If you insist on doing this, here's how it's to be done. Here's how it's to be done. So verse 27, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most, underline that word most. Okay, does the living Bible have the word most? I like mine more. <laughs> most of your Bibles will have that word most in it. Can I, can I get it? Does your Bible have the word most? Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to go. Okay. Living Bible is great, by the way. I'm just, I'm just playing. So just, it's, it's great. Okay, so at the most, and so Paul's putting some parameters. At the most, three. And then each in turn, mine says, however your Bible says it, and one must interpret. Does it have a must there? Yes. Oh, see? That's good. That's good. I was sweating there for a minute. So it has the word must there. Okay, that's good. So, so here, here's why this is so important. Paul says, if someone speaks in tongues, he does not say when you speak in tongues. The idea is he's already said it. If everybody's doing this, they're going to think you're mad. If you insist on this, if you do this, then here are the parameters. Two or three at the most. They need to be in order, one after the other, and there must be one that interprets. This is where we would be very different than our friends who uh, would be in a church where at a certain time everyone in the church service would speak in tongues at the same time. Paul, Paul's putting some parameters, and the parameters that Paul is putting are, are very, very clear, very, very straightforward. Does that make sense? So we would be different. We're not hostile. We love them. They love us. But, but based on what this says, we, we participate. We, we do things a little bit differently. Verse 28, he says, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. Again, not a small group or in private, but in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. So again, in church, two or three at the most, if there's no interpreter, they must keep silent. It's just, just, just what it says. And then again, I want you to notice that the direction of tongues speaks to God. It's always to God. It's never a message from God, at least not anywhere in the Bible. Verse 29, on the other hand, let two or three prophets speak. He doesn't say if they speak here. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Uh, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may, and in my Bible it says learn, and all may be exhorted. All may be exhorted. So this is very different. This is not if, this is let there be two you know, that do that. Two or three prophets. In that time, they didn't have a Bible. And what they had was Paul was here years ago, and somebody would stand up and they'd say, I remember Paul saying, and Paul, remember Paul said this, and they would give a message that way. Sometimes it would be revelation, and they'd say, here, here's what the Lord is giving me. And so when they did that, the conclusion of that would be, it would say that, that the rest of the congregation needs to judge. Is this really true? Does this make sense? Or, is it, you know, or, or are they off a little bit, and we, we need to discern that? 
So the idea is that you, you don't just accept everything that you hear in church, but you, you check it out. In verse 31, he says, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted or encouraged. I want, I want you to write this down. When he says that you can all do this one by one, what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit does not interrupt himself. So, so what was going on in the congregation, one would have this word they thought they had, somebody else would get something, they'd just stand up and start going and it would be interrupting. The Holy Spirit never interrupts himself. And then the result of this prophecy is in verse 31. He says, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. So the result of the prophecy that Paul is talking about leads to learning and encouragement. You want to write that down? Learning and encouragement. That's why we focus in on teaching the Bible, for learning and encouragement. Verse 32, he says, with that, he says, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. He's just said, do this one by one. Don't interrupt each other. Don't interrupt what the Holy Spirit is doing for the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So here's what this means. And uh, I'll unpack it as we go, but write this down. If it's from God, I won't lose control. So that's why he's just said, you do this one by one. And then he says, listen, the spirit of the prophets are always subject to the prophets. Not that the Holy Spirit makes you jump up and do this. That's not how he works. And, And I would say it like this. The Holy Spirit does not possess you in the way a demon would possess you. When you read of demon possession in the Bible, you see it around the world. It's taking control of your faculties. It causes you to fall down. There's the thrashing, there, you know, the strange things. This is very, very different than the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that, and, and one more step from last week, you recall that we talked about what, what it looks like when it's really God's spirit there in your outline, but the fruit of the spirit is love. And we went through that last week. And the last part, it says self-control. If it's really God's spirit, it's going to lead to self-control, not losing control because God's spirit does not possess you like a demon would possess you. So there, there is... Um, there have been certain, there, there is a teaching within the church that holds that if it's really God's spirit, you lose control, you, you fall down, and some places you writhe on the ground, you lose uh, um, your control over your capacities, you begin to laugh incoherently, uh, making barking sounds, and some of you know what I'm talking about there, and you just very, very strange things. The Holy Spirit does not possessed like a, a demon would. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's always going to make me look a lot more like Jesus. And the spirit of the prophet is always subject to the prophet. You, you won't lose control if it's the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And so if you, you've been like me around the church block, I've been in places where one time the worship leader was singing and he gets what we can only call happy feet. I can't do it, but his feet start going like this. He starts going backwards and he crashes into the orchestra pit. And everybody goes, it's the spirit of the Lord. And I'm like, I don't know. Are, are the drummers, you know, hitting the drums and all of a sudden he gets it and flips back and everything. It's the Spirit of the Lord. No, 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 that's, that's not. Because that's not how the Holy Spirit operates. He's very gentle and um, so, um, in control. Verse 33, we're going to come to our next rule, verse 33. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, underline that, but a God of peace, as in all the churches 
of all the saints, of the saints. So the next rule in church, don't be confusing. Don't be confusing. He's not the God of confusion. So for 2,000 years in all the churches, the rule has been don't do things that are confusing. Now, not every church has abided by that rule, but that's the rule. Then something hits Paul. He's thinking, oh yeah, confusing, confusing in the church. And Paul says, I've got to talk about this. And so in verses 34 and 35, Paul begins in verse 34. You have to read it like this. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And wouldn't you know we are out of time, and I just... I believe the Lord has really said what he wanted to say today. And... <laughs> Verse 34. <laughs> the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be, uh, and I want you to underline the word speak, they are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Now, underline this. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So here, right after verse 33, Paul says uh, he's not the God of confusion. Then something hits him. Something's causing confusion. So when Paul says they're not permitted to speak, is he saying that a woman can never speak in church? Well, I want you to remember that we've been in this section from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14, and it deals with what goes on in the church service. And you'll recall when we began what goes on in the church service back in chapter 11, Paul said this on your outline, chapter 11, verse 5. Uh, Paul said, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying. And we talked about that, but underline that word prophesying disgraces her head. And we, we talked about that at great length. And one of the points that we made was that when you prophesy, That's not something that you do personally. Remember that prophecy is speaking to man, and we've looked at that. He who speaks in a tongue speaks to God. He who prophesies speaks to man. And so Paul, in that verse, tells us that women were addressing the congregation, and they were using prophecy, which is exhortation, or edification, exhortation, and consolation, and it was very common, and there was nothing wrong with it. Paul says, as you do this, here's some parameters, and we, we looked at that when Paul said, as, as you do that. And then there were some parameters for the men also. And so something here, when Paul says that it can't speak, well, he's already said in verse, uh, chapter 11 that it's, that's okay, it's prophecy, you can do that. But something's happening here that's very, very different. Well, what's happening here? Well, in verse 35, it gives us some clues. It was okay for the woman to to speak to the congregation, giving prophecy, which is edification, exhortation, consolation. But here in verse 35, it's a little bit different. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. He's not saying that a woman can't address the congregation publicly, giving prophecy, edification, exhortation, consolation. But apparently what's going on here, and I want you to write this down, here the issue is inappropriately asking questions that was, uh, that in a way that disrupted the service. That's why he says if she wants to learn anything, she needs to ask her husband at home. 
This is very, very different than addressing through edification, exhortation, and consolation. Here's what's going on. In that culture 2,000 years ago, in the Greek culture and also in, in Israel, it was very common for women not to be taught how to read. So they would be untrained in religious, religious things. One day the gospel comes to, to Corinth and Paul begins to teach some things they'd never heard of before. For instance, Paul says, you know, in Christ there's no difference between Jew or Greek. There's no difference between Scythian barbarian. There's no difference between slave or free man, and there's no difference between male and female. And he says, we are all one in Christ. Remember those, those verses? And he says, we're one in Christ. So all of a sudden, women had this newfound freedom. And so they were coming to church. Now in the church, one of the things that the early church practiced, it's not a biblical thing, it's just something they picked up from, from the Jewish people back in, back in Israel. They practiced what we would call the synagogue model of church. So you'd come to church, women would sit on one side, men would sit on the other side, and so the men would be on one side and the women would be on the other side. And apparently what's taking place is somebody is standing up and they're addressing the congregation. And as they're doing this, uh, there's a lady over here on this side, and she says, well, what about this? So he has to stop what he's doing, gets going. Somebody says, well, what about this? What about this? And apparently the questions were to the point that it was disrupting the service, uh, speaking out in the service. So Paul says, if you want to learn, ask your husband, but do that at home, but don't disrupt the service. So the speaking here is speaking out in a way that's disrupting the service. It's not talking about what it talked about in chapter 11 where a woman stands up and very appropriately gives prophecy, edification, exhortation, and consolation. Does everybody see that? So they're two very, very different things. Now here's the problem. If you come from a church background like I do, this verse was interpreted and this became doctrine. So the only thing that women could do in the church service is on this side they could play the organ. It was always on the far end of the stage. And on this side they could play the piano. Was the piano on this side or was it on that side? Doesn't matter. So that was the idea. When we did that, what we didn't do is we didn't balance Scripture with Scripture. We took this, we made it doctrine, and we completely forgot what Paul had already said. Does that make sense? Okay, hopefully that that helps. And uh, verse 36, he says, Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things that I write to you are the Lord's command. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul's saying, if you're getting a different revelation than what I'm telling you, and you think you're spiritual, and I'm telling you this, but you think it's really like this over here, you need to recognize that, that what I'm giving you is the Lord's command. And as I give you the Lord's command, if uh, you don't recognize that, then you really need to be not recognized. Verse 39, he says, Therefore, brethren, earnestly desire, uh, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Very quickly, what Paul is doing here, Paul ends this, he's just given this teaching on speaking in tongues, not for the church service, but then he says, do not forget speaking in tongues. Why does he do that? Because he knows how we Christians are. We Christians, we take something, somebody abuses, and the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about it, but because somebody abuses, we look on and we say, so we will never use, and we overreact. And there's probably five things we could all name off the top of our head. So Paul concludes by saying, don't forbid it, 
On the other hand, you know, so you want to come to the place of proper. Verse 40, he says, and this is rule number three, but all things must be done properly and in an order, or orderly manner. So from the old King James, first rule, do what's beneficial to all. Number two, don't be confusing. Third rule in the church, let all things be done, again from the old King James, decently and in order. And with that, let's close in prayer. Did that make sense? Hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully that was helpful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, our desire as we go to your word is to discern from your word that which is your spirit and that which is is not. Our our desire isn't abuse or non-use. Our desire is proper use. So we pray that you would give us that discernment so that we could look and see and operate and step with what it is that you're doing. And we pray, God, that as we do that, that you would help us to represent you well in all things, as individuals, as a church, in this community, in the world that you've caused us to live. I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. We'll see you over at the church picnic.